Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the near future, a severe drought in the southwest has demolished Texas. Phoenix is ravaged and desolate, on the verge of a total breakdown. While the wealthy stay wet in lush high-rise cities, the poor are forced to pay $6 plus for a gallon of water and struggle to find ways north through militarized state lines. That's the frighteningly plausible future depicted in Paolo Bacigalupi's new novel, The Water Knife. Salt Lake City area author Ali Condi's new young adult novel, Atlantia, is set in an underwater world and was inspired in part by the days her children were forced to stay inside due to air pollution. She says, I live in an almost impossibly beautiful place. Every day I look up and draw in my breath at how beautiful it is, except in winter when I try not to breathe at all. Today we're exploring responses in fiction to our water and air problems. Uh, coming up later in the program, a conversation with Ali Conde. We begin with Paolo Bacigalupi, who is a Hugo Nebula and Michael L. Prince Award winner, as well as National Book Award finalist. His short fiction has appeared in Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, and High Country News. He lives with his wife and son in western Colorado. The website is windupstories.com. Paolo Bacigalupi, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Glad to be here. So uh, western uh, Colorado, pretty pretty close to our fair state here, and uh, these issues certainly resonate, I think, with all of us in in the West. What what were you setting out to do with uh, with the water knife? Well, I was uh, I was really interested in in sort of uh, what we're seeing, sort of statistically from climate data and where we're likely to be going. Um, uh, I've been fascinated by the Colorado River. Uh, my uh, where I live is actually on a tributary to the Colorado and. Um, I've been watching sort of like the, the slow sort of decline of the Colorado River over the last 10 years. Um, you know, year after year, you can see that Lake Powell and Lake Mead are getting lower and lower, and, and, and you see that they aren't refilling, and then you sort of ask yourself, well, if this goes on, what does our world look like? And, uh, and it's sort of, I sort of started coming up with troubling conclusions about that. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me about, uh, I was reading an interview, uh, you, you made reference to a water conference... You say you crashed. Yeah. Uh, sounds fun. Tell, tell me what you came up with, though, that uh, water conference. Well, yeah, this was when I was working on the water knife, and, uh, and then this was in 2012, and I was in Denver, and there was a water conference for, uh, there was a big drought conference, actually, because at that time, Colorado had been in a, in a terrible drought, and, and, and so I went to sort of see what, you know, what people, how people were responding to it, and it was fascinating to me for a couple of different reasons. Um, one of them was that you know you could hear all of these people talking about the major impacts that they were seeing from drought. You could hear from agricultural specialists who were talking about impacts. You could hear recreation people talking about impacts. And you know, and it was interesting to me because when you're talking about something like recreation, of course, a drought affects something like the ski industry. Um, but but less apparent was that even the summer industries were affected because we were having forest fires. And so when all the news of your state is that you're on fire, you don't get as many tourists. Um, and then later on, when you have a bunch of mudslides because all of the uh, the uh, soil cover has been burned down, um, that also makes for terrible headlines as far as tourism goes. Um, but there were other impacts, too. You were seeing that uh, you know people who are worked in sewage treatment and stuff like that couldn't release uh, sewage into the rivers because they need a certain amount of uh, water in the river to have a legal uh, uh, discharge. Um, they, need enough to, uh, they need enough mix, otherwise they'll literally poison the rivers. Um, uh, but I think the thing that really um, stood out the most uh, was that nobody, even as everybody was talking about the devastating impacts of this drought, nobody was really talking about climate change at all. In fact, they were avoiding the topic entirely. Um, 
very carefully. I remember when Governor Hickenlooper spoke, um, he, he dodged very artfully around the question of whether or not we needed to think about climate change and how that would affect our water supplies in the future. Um, and then particularly uh, after the conference, I went up and I talked to somebody from Denver Water, and, and it was really interesting because I, I asked him, so if, if Denver you know, has a drought like this one in 2012, how many droughts like this can Denver survive? How far can Denver go? Uh, and he said, well, I think we could last about five years. Um, you know, it would be pretty bad. Everybody would be on water restrictions. There would be uh, real cutbacks in industrial water use. All the trees in Denver would be dead. Uh, but we could still hang on. And, uh, and I asked him, well, so what are the chances that something like that could happen? And, and his answer was that, well, this has never happened in the past. And that really struck me because what we know from, from climate data is that, is that the past isn't really the model for us understanding our risks for the future. Um, and as a science fiction writer, when you're looking to create a disaster, of course, that's the perfect answer. You want that answer. You're like, great, you're not thinking about it at all. This is great. We're going to have – I'm going to write a beautiful disaster for you. Um, I'll give you that drought that's never happened before. Um, but uh, but as, a, as a citizen, you're sort of worried. So uh, why do you think we have this attitude? I, I, I've seen it as well. I think we can all relate to it, that, that we're, we're just dealing with the problems of today. Of course, there, there is long-range planning, but it seems like as a public we're, we're not focusing long, long-term. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that has to do, I mean, biologically, I think that we, we work very well with a problem that's immediate and apparent. Um, you know, a massive drought, like something like California is experiencing right now, gets everybody thinking about water. Um, but their vulnerabilities were always there, um, and all of those vulnerabilities are there for all of us. Um, so that you know, so that long-term distant problem isn't really one that we're we're well wired for biologically. So some of, some of this, I think, is just human nature. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, there has been a, a long-term and pretty well-documented attempt to make sure that we also don't believe that things like climate change exist. Um, you know, Exxon Mobil, the uh, the Koch brothers, the um, Competitive Enterprise Institute. I mean, there's a number of organizations that have worked pretty hard um, from the public relations perspective to throw a lot of doubt on the science of climate change, and it's worked really well. Um, so, now uh, I want to get into the the story, the the novel, which is pretty it's pretty stark. Yeah. But but you can see connections. You you know it's it's not that implausible if, if things keep going the way they they are. Right. Uh, so tell me about uh, Angel or Angel Velasquez. He's a water knife. What's a water knife? So water knives. So this is a future that where um, as the Colorado River is dwindled, um, all of the cities are scrambling for water, and uh, and and Las Vegas particularly realizes that they have a terrible. Uh, they've been dealt a terrible hand, and so. Um, one of the things that uh, Las Vegas has done is they've created these, this band of people called Water Knives. And Water Knives are sort of the professional thugs or 007s uh, of water. They go out and they give people offers on their water rights that they can't refuse. Um, they'll go and blow up somebody else's water treatment plant so that they can't pump out of the river. Um, you know, they're the sort of the, the handy thug who gets the job done so that uh, Las Vegas can always keep drinking. Um, and so Angel is, is one, of the, one of the best of these water knives. Mm. And he's working for a uh, Las Vegas water mogul. Who, and, and right. Yeah, he's working for Catherine Case, and she's the head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority in this future. Um, and uh, Catherine Case is actually... Uh, uh, modeled over um, the recent um, uh, head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, Patricia Mulroy, who I have a huge amount of respect for because she was so effective at, at trying to get Las Vegas towards a more 
sort of uh, sort of defensible, sustainable place in terms of water. Mm. She's the person who put out water bounties on lawns and things like that to right. pay people to rip out their lawns so that Vegas could have enough water. Um, so, um, so Catherine Case is sort of the 4.0 version of that, um, where uh, the world has gotten worse and she keeps trying to stay ahead of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I made that leap as well. I, I was going to ask you if it's modeled after Pat Mulroy. Um, yeah, because she's, I mean, she's a controversial figure, but I get, but she would say, and I've interviewed her, she would say, I'm, you know, I'm just looking out for Las Vegas. That's what I'm, that's right. what I'm doing. Yeah, right? and that's, I think that there's these, the, the, the thing that I'm interested in the story is those people who are sort of very clear-eyed about the future or about their situation and just make the moves to survive. Um, and Catherine Case is very much that kind of person. She's not, per- she's not very sentimental. Um, and, you know, her job is to make sure that Las Vegas keeps running, you know, at the expense of anybody else that, you know, gets in her way. Um, and, and so, you know, someone... Someone like you know, people in Phoenix might argue that, that Las Vegas is completely amoral, but uh, but but Las Vegas's perspective is that no, no, no. Well, somebody's got a drink here, and we'd rather it was us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. Now, water water is a zero sum game, isn't it? And you and in your novel, you're taking this towards the nth degree as water dries up, at least in this part of the U.S. in your in your future. Uh, then those conflicts heighten. Right. I think that I think that at some level of scarcity. Yes, water does become absolutely zero sum. Um, we never really know where that level of scarcity is. Um, it's, it's been said that there's never actually been a formal war over water, but you see a lot of conflicts already about water, and you see what, conflicts triggered by the lack of water as well. Um, a lot of theories about uh, the war in Syria have to do with the idea that essentially Syria ended up with a bunch of drought refugees. Um, they couldn't sort of take the, uh, they couldn't take care of them, and that sort of triggered the resentments that created the, the revolution in Syria. And you sort of see that destabilization where um, when people go wanting and have to move somewhere else, that triggers other destabilizations. And, uh, um, and that's something I'm very interested in, is what is that point where we just don't have enough to go around, and then how do people deal with that? Now, in your, in your future, the, 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 there's... It's militarized, right? The states, the wetter states, are trying to keep out people trying to flood in from from the drier right. states. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, the thing is, is you know, we know that like when 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 things go wrong in one place, people don't just stay there. You know, nobody's going to stay and starve if their state doesn't have any water, or they aren't going to stay stay in the place which has no jobs because all the businesses move to someplace else where there's water. They're going to follow it. They're going to move towards prosperity. That's what we all do. It's a it's a natural human instinct. Um, but it's also a natural human instinct to say, no, no, we got ours, right? Those people who are sitting pretty want to protect it. And, um, and so in this future, Texas has been completely devastated. Um, uh, other parts of the southern United States have been completely devastated. And, and people are trying to move north. They're trying to move towards those places where water still falls from the sky. And, and those people who are, who are in those better positions have realized, like, wait, if we let all these refugees in, that threatens our prosperity, too. So... All of the states have gotten much more aggressive about their states' rights, about their border controls. Um, you see them sort of really trying to protect their own spaces. And so, yeah, there are border patrols in Nevada and California and other northern states where they're all trying to sort of hold the line against the climate refugees as those people try to push north towards better place, places. And this, uh, you know, echoes controversy and immigration, you know, just makes it sort of internal. Sure. Uh, I wonder... Yeah, no, I mean, I think that immigration is almost always that impulse of one person sitting and saying, wait, I, I, I live in a terrible place. I need to find a better spot where I can prosper. 
and you know the conflict then comes from other people feeling like there's not enough to go around mm-hmm. which may or may not be true i mean one of the things about the water knife story is that it's this is the future it's i don't i don't think i write predictive futures exactly but i sort of spin out scenarios and in the water knife future it's definitely a scenario where people are are concluding that they cannot work together that they and they and they have sort of an aversion towards working together um, so, you know, whether or not there's a better possibility out there where we all tend to work together or cooperate or try to figure out a better way to share, um, you know, that might be a better future. But it's not the one in the water knife. I wonder if you'd uh, address the, the current floods in Texas. I, I could see some people saying, you know, in your novel, it's a big drought. And Texas has had horrible droughts before. But, right. Uh, but as, as people say, uh, as you say, it's not predictive. But, uh, you know, the plausibility, you look to the, your future. Horrible drought in Texas. People reading that say, uh, "Well, right now there's a flood in Texas." So right, exactly, and that's you know that's our response to weather, right? Um, the difference between climate and weather, as climate is over th- the average over 30 years, um, you know this this deluge that Texas has recently gotten um, is fascinating, but it, it broke a five-year drought. Um, sort of the real question is what happens next year for Texas and the year after that. Um, statistically, Texas, uh, the drought that Texas just had matches very closely with the climate models for the future of Texas. Um, And I was down there in 2011, and it was really interesting to sort of see the impacts of drought down in Texas um, and how closely they matched with climate models and then sort of asking yourself, like, how does this look? And it was pretty scary, really. Um, So, you know, they're they're flush with water for the moment, too flush. Um, But the other thing about uh, a lot of the climate models is that they predict more intense and overwhelming weather. and so in that sense, the floods, you know, they, they have a moment of plenty, and, and that isn't, that's just as destructive almost as the drought. Um, so, you know, there's this, it, as far as climate stuff goes, it, it, it matches pretty well um, with, with uh, the, the long-term devastation. So. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, more with Paolo Bacigalupi. He is author of the very interesting uh, new uh, novel, The Water Knife. It's set in the future in the Southwest, uh, a future... Uh, where there's uh, conflict over water that's been ratcheted up to uh, militarization, and uh, and people like uh, his uh, the hero of the novel uh, Angel Velasquez, who's a water knife, he uh, goes out and, uh, and basically diverts water. Also, he's a he's a historian. He goes he tries to find the most senior water rights, and that becomes uh, a very interesting feature of the novel. We'll talk more about this. And a very interesting feature of the novel as well is the Mary Perrys. This gets us into climate change, science, religion, more following the break. About 40 years ago, the primatologist Franz de Waal was observing chimpanzees one day when he saw two of them fighting. And a couple of hours later, I saw a big commotion in the group and I saw the two chimps kiss and embrace each other. And that moment led him to wonder whether morality might be hardwired within us what animals might teach us about ourselves next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Sweetgrass Counseling Services with Dr. Deb Cupel, helping to empower individuals, families, and couples in everyday challenges, including health and sports-related issues. Details at sweetgrasscounseling.com. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're uh, getting responses in fiction to our water and air problems. And right now we're talking with Paolo Bacigalupi, author of The Water Knife, which is out. I should mention that Paolo Bacigalupi will be at the King's English Bookshop on Wednesday of this week. At 7 o'clock, I'll do a reading, a talk, question and answer session, and book signing. That is on Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock, King's English Bookshop. Uh, coming up in uh, 10 or 15 minutes, we'll uh, uh, bring on Ali Condi, who's uh, addressing uh, our future with her young adult novel, Atlantia, set in an underwater world. And you're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on Twitter. Uh, and uh, our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Love to get your uh, perspective. So in this uh, future, Paolo Bacigalupi, uh, the economic divide, the have and have not divide, has been exacerbated, and it's all along the fault line, if you could uh, phrase it that way, of, of water, right? Uh, the, the richer are, are fine. They protected their own interests, and uh, right. the poor, they're paying $6 plus for a gallon of water. Right, and I mean, and, and we, we so I, I'm really interested in how wealth buffers us against disaster, um, at least for a while. Um, and you know, uh, the the one the, one of the things that I'm really interested in is is you know when 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 there's a problem uh, like drought or there's a problem of a resource scarcity, um, you know, the rich tend to tend to have the ability to buffer themselves against those problems. Um, and so in this future, um, the, the, the rich have actually moved inside of these giant arcologies. Instead of, um, instead of living out in, out in the desert anymore, they've built these giant arcologies that are these sort of self-integrated cities um, where all of the water and food is generated from inside. They have um, huge hydroponic systems for food. They have um, you know, beautiful lush waterfalls inside of these giant buildings. They've got, um, you know, everything that they need. And they take in a certain amount of water, but they keep everything that they have. They, they recycle all of their waste. They recycle all of their water. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the, 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 the poor or the people who weren't lucky enough to get in uh, have, to, have to survive on very little at all. And they're sort of left outside in the dust storms and, and, and the heat. Hmm. And as we mentioned before, they're trying to get north, trying to get to wetter uh, places, and then those particular states don't want them in. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, uh, is it Maria? She's uh, one of those refugees. Right. So Maria Villarosa, is, uh, she's, uh, she is a climate refugee, and um, she's uh, fled out of Texas. Texas has been devastated by a sequence of droughts and hurricanes and, and natural disasters, sort of. And, and, and so she's fled out of Texas. Um, and because of the state border controls laws, she's only made it as far as Phoenix, and then she sort of smashed up against the walls that, that Nevada and California had put up to keep her from getting any further out. Um, and so she's living in Phoenix as a, as a, as a sort of a second-class citizen in a city that also is also, is also falling apart. Um, and, and so she's just trying to figure out a way to survive and, and trying to figure out, like, what is the path for her to get north? Um, when literally no one cares about her and 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 she's despised as a uh, as a as a as a Texan or as a as a Mary Perry sometimes they're called uh, and yeah so uh, tell me about uh, clear sex and you pointed out earlier in the program we use water for everything including for sewage 
Right. Uh, ClearSacks uh, were, were one of those things. I, I, w- I wanted to create a futuristic world, but I also wanted that world to be really uh, embedded in the specific problems I was interested in. And so with drought and with, with scarcity, ClearSacks uh, have been invented. And what they are is they're, they're um, sort of plastic bags that people can pee into. Um, and when they squeeze the plastic bag, then it will filter that urine and, and filter out all the impurities, and you get water again. Um, uh, the problem, of course, with these clear sacks is that they're they're sort of cheap and they're disposable and they only last so many times, and and then they're just dis- then they're thrown away. And so these clear sacks are blowing all over the streets and getting hung up in the saguaro cactus and 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 generally becoming another form of litter. Um, but they are literally the way that the the, the poor survive uh, is that with a, with a cheap clear sack um, they can recycle their own water. Now, you point out in this, in your future, we're talking about the water knife, Paolo Bacigalupi is the author, uh, that water permeates everything. It's, it's an important part of our economy. So in this future, uh, the city's, talking about Phoenix, I think, is losing its public services because it's lost its tax base. The real estate right. values have plummeted. Yeah. It, it affects everything. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is, I mean, we can build a beautiful house, right? And, and you have this lovely house, and you can have your granite uh, countertops and your marble tile, and, and you can have your three-and-a-half baths with the jet tub or whatever. And, uh, and, and all of that only is as valuable as you have water coming in through the water tap and water flowing out through the toilet. Otherwise, it's just a, a strange collection of sort of rock and sheetrock and... and, and, and it's, it becomes almost immediately valueless once you lose those water services. Um, the, the structure itself has very little value, and all the things that you invested in it that made it you know, beautiful or you, you thought um, become valueless as well. And so as, these, as subdivisions have to be shut down, as their water gets shut off, um, all of this, uh, yeah, basically it, it becomes zero value in terms of a tax base. The citizens leave. Um, the people who can't leave Aren't re- don't really have any incomes. Also, you see businesses that all depend on water, um, you know, and so they, they need st- stable supplies of, of water in order to be there, and so businesses migrate away, so you have jobless. And, and it's just one of those things that permeates every part of our society. Um, when I was down in Texas in 2011, something that really struck me was that they were having rolling brownouts down there, and that was because they didn't have enough uh, water in their dams to uh, generate a uh, hydraulic head for their turbine for their uh, hydro turbines and so um, in that particular case water was literally power um, and at a time when everybody was running their air conditioners at, at max because they were having record numbers of 100 degree days uh, they didn't have enough electricity to generate uh, so you know there's all these different ways that water permeates our lives and and many of them we, we just don't even notice You've uh, you've had a, a past in journalism, right? You wrote for the High Country News, and uh, uh, and a very interesting part of this book, you're imagining the future of journalism as well. Tell me about blood rags. Yeah, in the so uh, yeah, I used to work for the environmental newspaper High Country News. I was their online editor, um, and you're already then seeing uh, changes in the way that reporting works, and the way that like people's interest drives reporting. Um, and and so the blood rags are these essentially murder papers. Um, and as Phoenix has fallen apart more and more, uh, the salacious news of the day really is is all of the the murders that are going on, all of the all of the scandals and murders and things that are happening. And that's where um, you know all of the all of the hits and page views uh, come from. Uh, and uh, and so Lucy Monroe is my third character in the book. There's Angel Villarosa, who's the water knife, and there's um, Maria Velasquez, the um, I, I mean. 
Maria Villarosa, the um, <laughs> the the climate refugee, and then there's there's Lucy Monroe, and she's she's a journalist covering Phoenix as it falls apart, and she makes a certain amount of her money from covering these these terrible murders that are going on in Phoenix and the terrible sort of atrocities that people commit against one another um, because those are the popular things, even as she tries to write stories that are of substance and, and value on the side that, that nobody cares about. You know, every time she reports on something like, you know, what happened at the latest, you know, water board meeting or whatever, nobody cares about that exactly. They only care about the bloodshed. Um, um. And, and all of this, I, w- I wondered. Uh, tell me first of all, uh, then I have a follow-up question about your process. S- so you're you want to imagine a future, not predictive, but I but I guess cautionary, right? But, but how how do you? Uh, it's imagination, of course. But you start with some research, and then must be a lot of fun, kind of imagining all this mayhem, but troubling on a <laughs> another level as well. Right. Yeah. No, there is very much. Um, I, I sort of will look around. Uh, the, the beginning point for me almost always is I'll look around and I'll see a trend or some kind of a factoid that I notice and it, and it sticks with me. And, it, and, it's, and I ask myself, if this goes on, what will the world look like? If this becomes the most dominant trend, what will the world look like? And, and for me, without question with this book, it was looking at water levels in Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And I was seeing that Las Vegas was digging deeper and deeper um, intakes into the bottom of Lake Mead. Now they're working on intake number three to get to basically the bottom of Lake Mead so they can pump water out because all their other intakes are above water, essentially. Um, and, and seeing that, that, that's a trend, and that's fascinating. And you say, okay, so if that goes on, if we keep you know, sort of pursuing this inc- increasingly scarce source of water, where do we end up? And you ask that question again and again about everything, about how does that change society, how does that change politics, how does that change... Um, you know, personal relationships, everything that, you know, you can sort of cascade out. And then, you know, even things like how does it change technology? You create clear sacks. Um, all of that, you build this sort of, you're, you're, you're trying to build a really rich, lived-in world that also sounds perfectly reasonable. Um, but, but, yeah, you're doing it partly as a warning, too, because you don't really want to go to that future exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but it seemed, it's interesting to me that you're, you're just putting more and more pressure on the seams in society that already exist. And then, right. and then, and then, so it's implausible in that way. Right, and I, I think you, you want it to be plausible. You want it to feel like it's rooted in some sort of you know, deep reality. Um, you, know, you start from those, those core building blocks where you can see, um, you can, you know, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll look at another society that's had scarcities, and I'll bring those details into this, into this story. Um, or, you know, it's like you're, you're starting from these, these jumping-off points where you want it to just feel like it's two minutes into the future, and most of the things are highly recognizable, and you can see the very reasonable adaptations that people would make, um, even if they create a horrifying sort of result. Um, you want it to feel very reasonable and very, of course it would go that way. Um, so that, and that's, you know, that's the, the sort of the guesswork of extrapolation, but you're trying to build it and make it feel very, um, very honest. Um, uh, tell me about the Mary Perrys. This is uh, so. Tell me who they were, are first. And I think you've modeled this after Rick Perry, governor of Texas. Yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> well, the Mary Perrys are these religious groups who uh, who have come out of Texas, and they're they're sort of certain that the, the that the world has gone to pieces because God has turned His face away from them, um, and it's essentially that it, with 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 enough sort of self-flagellation and, and penance that that god will come back and give them rain again and uh... and this was actually modeled specifically um... and and i'm sort of yeah name-checking rick perry specifically because 
uh, during that drought in 2011 when I was down there and seeing all this sort of devastated Texas, Rick Perry was going around and encouraging people to hold prayer circles. He was having people do prayer circles and pray for rain. Um, and, and I watched that, and I thought, this is, this is worrisome, because the, at the time he was the governor of Texas, and he was also a legitimate presidential candidate. Um, and, uh, and I thought, you know, here's something where we're in this terrible drought, which is likely to be um, sort of the new normal as we move forward into, the coming, into this century. And, um, and the leadership feels, it feels like the leadership is engaged in magical thinking. They, you know, they're, he's, he's sitting there praying for rain instead of saying, yeah, we're, something bad is coming here and we need to make plans and get ready. Um, and so, you know, if there's anything in the book that I, I sort of emphasize again and again is the people who can see reality and who plan for it and react to reality and the data that we, we have, the science that we have, are the people who tend to survive. And those people who, you know, engage in sort of magical thinking or sort of in, in, in sort of, um, uh, uh, what's the word, um, sort of, uh, you know, looking backwards uh, at the past with, with some, you know, uh, with, with that, with the idea that the past is the model for our future, those people tend to fail. Um, so anyway, with Rick Perry praying for rain, I thought I really want to have you in the book, and so I created an entire religious cult around him, um, and that's the Mary Perrys. Now we should mention that the, there's an increasing trend among religious communities to, uh, you know, to embrace the science and and, uh, and and fold that into their religious mission. What what the Mary Perrys reminded me of it was, I, I continually notice. Um, it's what I call a, almost a faith divide among, uh, you know, the between those who embrace climate science and those who don't. You know, right? Believe in the science thing. or it's you don't. It's, it's not strictly a religious divide, but it's a, it's accepting climate science or not. Right, and it's. I mean, it, it, this is this is you know an idea about how we how we view our world and uh, and and. You know whether or not we believe that science data exists, whether we understand that it's testable, whether or not we understand that there is a, a, a sort of a, a path that science takes us on that leads us towards better understanding of our of our world, or not. Um, it's not. I mean, religion is definitely the space of faith. Um, that's the spot where you you exist in the unprovable, um, the untestable. You know, God is out there. We have faith in that. Um, Science is the space where we say, we think it's like this, we make tests, and when we get those tests confirmed, we say, yeah, we're on the right track here. Um, we believe that the world is, is round, so we're going to sail around it, and we tested it, and it worked. You know, those things like, um, and so, um, yeah, you know, you sort, of, you sort of hope that, like, one of the, I remember seeing a graph of, of different uh, religious faiths and where they sort of fell in terms of um, understanding and believing in climate science and, and science issues generally, and it was it was interesting to see how different faiths react to uh, to science data and climate data, things like that. Um, it, it's uh, you know it's all over the map. There's no there's no um, absolute defining thing, but you do sort of see things like the you know Catholicism starting to make a, a much bigger shift towards saying yes, we understand the world via science, and we're going to have we're going to plan accordingly. We are addressing our water and air problems uh, through the lens of uh, fiction writers uh, on today's program. We're talking with Paolo Bacigalupi. His uh, new novel is The Water Knife. And we bring now in uh, Salt Lake City area author Ali Condi. Her new novel, a very interesting novel set in an underwater world, is called Atlantia. Uh, Ali Condi, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wanted to have the two of you on uh, here a bit, and then we'll uh, talk with uh, Ali alone uh, to conclude the program. But what I wanted to address uh, with each of you, I'll start with uh, Paolo Bacigalupi with this. 
um, is what your purpose is in in imagining futures, which you which you or or alternate uh, worlds, which you both do. And uh, Paolo Bacigalupi, I'm reading an interview here where you're talking about the word dystopia or dystopian, oh. which uh, both of your you know work uh, is is described in in this matter. What uh, tell me about the dystopia? Maybe how it's changed over time. Uh, well, you know, with with uh, dystopia, I have always thought of dystopias as being those the, those societies which are perfectly constructed, except for that they turn out to be hell for the individuals who have to live inside of them. Um, uh, over time, like that 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 term has changed to sort of reflect most science fictional futures, especially if you're writing in young adult fiction, which I have and and which Ali also does. Um, uh, but. Uh, but I think that you know when when you talk to talk about purpose, um, one of the ideals of a dystopia is to say, here's the model of a here here are trends. Let's take a look at them. Do we want to live inside of that world? Shall we not avoid those? Um, and that and that very much is the space that I work in when I'm work writing. Is that I want to create a, a visceral, lived-in sense of the future so we can weight it in a way that makes us believe in it and think about it and make choices in our present. Um, I think that dystopias. When they're when they're functioning at their best, they become uh, contextualizers for our present. Um, they allow us to look around and see the news items of the day and see them in a different, clearer light because we've sort of lived out to the future that those news items seem to be indicating that we're going towards. Ali Condi, what do, what do you think? You you've uh, you've written in uh, you know alternate universes. So you've created worlds, including in at Atlantia. What's uh, what what are the advantages, I guess, and uh, what's your purpose? Well, I really like everything Paolo just said about um, making it something that feels compelling and, and action-taking to people who are reading it. And when you're writing to young adults, certainly you don't want to be didactic or, you know, that, that's not the point. The point is to tell a good story, but the point is to tell a good story that you care about and that, that you think has value for the society and for the people that you're telling it to. And in my case, I used to be a teacher and I have kids now, and so I think... The, the automatic extension for us now as, as adults living is to worry about who's coming after us and, and what kind of a world we're handing over. And the environmental change is, is really concerning. That's something that I think about literally every day and I'm constantly worried about. And I know Orwell, obviously, back when he wrote 1984, was responding to the political climate of the time. And I remember my dad saying he read 1984 as a teenager and it terrified him because it seemed so plausible. Mm-hmm. And I think... Paolo and I both feel like the futures that we're writing are very plausible, and so that's why we've turned to this dystopia. It feels urgent. It feels like it's already kind of in some sense happened, whereas we're living in a place where we could still maybe change things if we if we actually do anything soon. <laughs> uh, Paolo Bacigalupi, you, uh, this interview I've been reading, um, you say you write black swan stories. Yeah. So, so I, this is the best definition that I've come up with, sort of for what I what I think about. And and a black swan event is essentially one that comes out of us from nowhere. We perceive that it comes out from nowhere and and hits us, uh, you know, upside the side of our heads. Um, black swan events uh, are the ones that weren't predicted by history. Um, there's a, a great example of a turkey on a turkey farm who's fed every day and believes that human beings. Uh, love him and care about him, and he believes that because every day he gets that data reconfirmed all the way up until the day before Thanksgiving when he's given a new important piece of data. Um, and the thing about that sort of a story is that like when, when we, we sort of have one experience which, which tells us all is safe, all is safe, we can miss 
the most important piece of data that's coming at us, um, the thing that will knock us off completely. Mm. Um, and so my stories tend to be those ones where, oh, you thought you understood that we were, you know, you, you thought we were headed towards a lovely future, or you thought we were all going to continue to be rich, and you, know, we, you thought your children would be okay, but oops, look, there's this other piece of data that we weren't paying attention to. Mm. Um, there's something Allie really said that's important to me, is that um, you know, when we think about our children, um, you, you, you think about what kind of world we're handing off to them. And one of the things I've noticed about us as adults is that we tend to live our lives mostly for our own needs and wants in the moment. Um, and we tend to discount the needs and wants of you know, our children who will be growing up and existing in a future of 30 years down the road and what their real needs and wants. They may not thank us for our, our immediate decisions um, that we're doing here and now. And that's um, very important, I think, and and it strikes me more and more. Uh... So uh, uh, Ali Kandi will will uh, finish this segment uh, here and, uh, and then uh, say goodbye to Paolo Bacigalupi. Bring Ali Kandi uh, in the uh, in the last segment here. But um, I imagine that resonates with with you. You you've mentioned that uh, one of the reasons you wrote Atlantia was, was you're thinking you're looking at air quality through the through the eyes of your children. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so I have, I'm pretty conscious about, I'm one of those kind of protective parents, and I know when it's a red air day, which is when we have bad air locked in our valleys during the winter because of the inversions, and it comes in the, in the summertime too. And I know that if you're out for half an hour, um, the data shows that if, if you're out there for that long, it's like you've been smoking three packs of cigarettes, I think is the stat, is the stat that they had. And I've seen just a lot of, of attitudes about this where, oh, it's just our geography, that's just the way it is, there's nothing we can do, and that's not true. Um, yeah, we have some interesting geography that makes it so we do have an inversion, but it's our own pollution that's getting trapped down here. And so I think about it all the time how not only we live in this state that cares about kids and families, and yet we're sort of willing to give ourselves a pass because it's easier to drive a big SUV in the winter. And not and say that we can't do anything about the air. It's it's a juxtaposition that I find really troubling. We'll uh, we'll take a break now. And right now, we'll say goodbye to uh, Paolo Bacigalupi. Let me mention that uh, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop on Wednesday. This is Wednesday at uh, seven o'clock. Reading, talk, Q and A, and book signing. The book is The Water Knife. Very interesting. Paolo Bacigalupi, a, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll have uh, Ali Kandi. We'll talk about Atlantia air quality and other issues following this break. We, we can do e-commerce almost without thinking. It's basically frictionless. But if you just want to send small amounts of cash to people in other countries, that still hasn't caught up with the times. The true cost of sending money is definitely close to zero or below 1%. I'm Kai Rizdal. Remittances and the costs thereof next time on Marketplace from APM. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Every day on Morning Edition, it's the news you can't do without. This morning we've been looking at what's happening. There's conservatism, libertarianism, environmentalism, religion. We're not props, we're just everyday people. The crowd, the joy, the sense of hope. Historic. Listen tomorrow to Morning Edition from NPR News. Join us weekday mornings from 5 to 9 for Morning Edition on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We conclude the program with Ali Condi, who is uh, author of the critically acclaimed Matched Trilogy, a number one uh, New York Times and international bestsellers, bestseller. The series has been published in more than 30 languages. Ali Condi is a former English teacher, lives with her husband and four children outside of Salt Lake City. Uh, she says she loves reading, writing, running, and listening to her husband uh, play guitar. The website is alicondi.com. And uh, put this quote, pretty uh, pretty stark, strong quote, Ali Condi, in, in my introduction. You say, I live in an almost impossibly beautiful place. You're talking about Salt Lake City area. Every day I look up and draw in my breath at how beautiful it is, except in the winter when I try not to breathe at all. And so uh, I wonder if you could span it. We, we started this uh, before the break, but uh, your children are essentially trapped inside. <laughs> A lot of children. The, the warnings, we're all familiar with them. You know, children, elderly shouldn't go outside. In fact, on some days, none of us should go outside. Yeah, I, I find that really just sad <laughs> and and concerning, too, because it doesn't seem like we've gotten a handle at all on the air pollution problem. And I moved away for five years. I lived in New York, and when I came back, I had two little kids. And I thought, oh, my word, this is so much worse than I remembered, and I don't know if that was wishful thinking or um, or, or just being more cognizant of, of what was happening. But I did think there are so many red air days. This last winter, we got a little bit of a pass. But I think we were pretty lucky, and I don't know if that's a trend that's going to continue. But, yeah, the fact that we need to keep kids inside, the fact that we don't know really how to get a handle on this, I find it really concerning. And this illustrates something we were talking earlier with Paula Bacigalupi about, uh, which is uh, we seem to have as a society, as you know, collective culture, humans, I guess, a uh, really hard time focusing on long term. And, and I think this is part of that phenomenon. We had a pretty good year uh, season this this year, not really bad, and I, and I I think I detected less conversation about air quality, maybe less hand wringing, but it'll be back if if uh, next winter is bad. Yeah, exactly, and and I think some of the people who are saying, oh, this just disproves the climate change problem, you think, no, no, you know, this actually proves it. It's now warmer, which presents a different problem entirely, and so it's a conversation that I think we still need to have, of course, every year, even though sometimes the effects of what we're seeing are a little bit different. So tell me about this. You say you've, reading an interview, you say you'd always wanted to create an underwater world. Uh, I don't know if that's living in the, in the desert. What, <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I had not thought of that connection, but I think you're probably absolutely right. I'm from Cedar City, and it, you know, if it rains there, it is a great beautiful, wonderful thing, and I don't think there's anything quite as nice as a thunderstorm in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband's from Seattle, and so he likes the rain, too, but he's, he's quite used to it. But yeah, I've always, I really loved the story of the Little Mermaid. As a kid, I found it very compelling, and I, I liked the story. It's, it's actually a very dark and sad story with an, an, an unhappy ending, or kind of a, a slightly hopeful ending, but she certainly doesn't get the prince in the original version, and she dies. And I've always found that a really compelling story. I thought, what would it be like to reimagine that in, in the future in the, instead of the past and without mermaids? So in my story, they're humans, but they build an underwater city, and they're trying to survive, and the city's breaking, and things are sort of coming apart. And they've done this because of the air quality just being too toxic above to live in. And, and so they've built a bit of a caste society where the lucky rich people get to live below and the unlucky people have to live above and breathe that toxic air and have this shorter lifespan and sort of send supplies down. And obviously there's some problems with that, and people aren't happy with the positions they've been given. So it was pretty easy to think, okay, why would they need to build an underwater world? That was a 
well, of course, because the air was bad, it was a pretty easy connection to make. Yeah, but some get to, some want to go above, right? And some get to go above. And in this case, uh, your heroine Rio um, wants to, but but doesn't get to it the, the first because her sister went right. went up. Yeah, they do have this this one day where they can decide. Okay, if I want to sacrifice and, and give this life of surface, I can go live on the surface, live above. Um, but they only get one day to make that choice, and that's when they turn 16. It's kind of a, a coming-of-age situation. And so so in this case, at the very opening scene of the book, we see the girl and her twin sister, and they're making the choice about what they're going to do. And, and there's some choices made that surprise each other and and kind of set off the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this idea of sacrifice, and that, that's, a, that's a theme through, through the book. I, w- I wonder how that—I I mean, I can see that that— would apply to our everyday lives here. If we want to solve our problems here, there's going to have to be sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be personal sacrifice. If we do decide to solve this for our kids, it will be inconvenient. Um, It will be maybe more expensive than we'd like. But in the end, I think most people are compelled, if not to sacrifice for themselves, they'll often sacrifice for someone that they love. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm hoping as a culture will become willing to do for our kids. Tell me about uh, there's Atlantia has a living, breathing collective memory. It's it's a, f- a physical place or space. Yeah, there's kind of this. There is a bit of a magical realism and element, or a fantastical element to the story. It's based on a lot of personal experience um, with water and air and all of that. That's all real. But then there's also this collective. Uh, like you said, a history, a story that you can only tap into if you're willing to listen. And I find that I probably got that idea looking back and thinking about it, because living in Utah, you grow, you do grow up with a collective story of sacrifice and difficulty and ultimately of overcoming with our pioneer heritage stories. And I feel like if we are going to come out of this and make, make a difference in the world with the air and with all the other environmental things, as, as a Utah culture, I feel like we have a very strong story of sacrifice and doing what needs to be done and, and actually making a success of it. And that's a collective experience I find really empowering. I love the pioneer stories. I'm hoping it's something we can tap into and be willing to listen to as well. So does that make you hopeful then? It does. The, our environmental yeah, future? I mean, when you read those stories, you think there's no way they could have done this. I mean, they suffered so much and continued to suffer once they arrived in the valley, but they made it happen. And so that's that's something that I, I'm really hopeful about, is that I do think that we like to think about those stories. I do think they're embedded in our culture, and I'm hoping we can draw on them in a positive, proactive way. Uh, we uh, I noticed, um, and the promotional materials make this uh, very clear. Of course, you're, you're trying to draw out the, the themes of the book, but uh, your, your heroine, Rio, Holds the power to save her world. That resonated with me. I mean, you know, think about you and me and everybody listening. We have the power to save our world if if we will. Yeah, and particularly, I feel like it's exciting in Utah. This is another thing we do where we um, we really give a lot of power and responsibility to people at a very young age. And often I get asked the question in New York, why are there so many children's authors in Utah? And I say, I think it's because we genuinely value youth. And we think our kids are capable of doing amazing things. 
And so, yeah, I feel like I have the power to change the world. I feel like every teenager I encounter has the power to change the world. I think it's hard to know how sometimes or how to find people who feel like-minded about it. And so hopefully hopefully we can do that and come together. But, yeah, I feel really positive about the young people today that we have and how smart they are. What do you hope, what's, what's the biggest thing you hope your readers will take from, from the book? You know, I, I'm talking a lot about the environment and everything, and certainly that's something I'd love for them to take from it. But it's also a story about a girl who, um, in a lot of ways, was told that she could not do things and then did. And I think as a society, especially with women, that's another thing I, I worry about a lot is we live in this culture now where girls are told through media and all the all the culture around them, you're beautiful, you're great, let us look at you, let us tell you how to look. We'd rather you didn't talk so much, and that's what, um, we'd rather you didn't have opinions. And that's the theme I put in the story that was, the main theme I thought of as I started the book was about this, this young woman who's told, you have value in the way we tell you that you have value, but we're not actually interested in, in what you have to say and what you would like to change and do. And she overcomes that and I feel like women are doing that all the time. Young women that I know are doing that all the time, and it's a very powerful thing to see. Should mention uh, we're out of time. Should mention there's a beautiful romance in, in the book as well. Um, oh, I'm glad. We're, we're to, I do like to add to romance. That's, <laughs> That's always great. fun to put in there, and yeah. I feel like that can be a powerful thing too when you find someone who sees you as as powerful and is not afraid of that. I think that's a great thing to have. Atlantia, it's set in an underwater world and addresses environmental issues in a, in a, uh, in a very uh, interesting way. Ali Condi is the author. She lives uh, near Salt Lake City uh, here in Utah. She's author previously of the international bestseller Matched. Um, by the way, Ali Condi, uh, Matched, I think, has been optioned for a movie. It has. Yeah, Disney optioned it for a movie back in 2010, right, when it came out. And we haven't seen a lot of movement on that front since. But, you know, you never know. Maybe someday there does seem to be a lot of dystopia in the theater. Maybe someday they'll need more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, I'd love to yeah. see that. Uh, well, Ali Condi, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow, I hope you'll join us, uh, California-based writer Cheryl Kohlberg. Uh, estimated that, that she spent four months of her year using some form of entertainment technology, TV or surfing the Internet. So she proposed a bold plan to her husband and five-year-old daughter, rid their home of all technology, TV, phones, Internet, digital cameras. They did this for a full year, and the book is A Year Unplugged, A Family's Life Without Technology. We'll talk with Cheryl Kohlberg and others about unplugging tomorrow on the program. Hope you join us. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Talk about iconic species at Yellowstone National Park, and you'll most likely start with bison. So tightly are these animals tied to the national parks that they're even on the Interior Department's emblem. But Yellowstone bison are also controversial. Many of these shaggy animals head out of the park in winter and roam into Montana. That can be a problem as some of Montana's livestock industry fear bison would transmit brucellosis, a disease that can cause cows to abort their fetuses to their herds. Since 2000, the Interagency Bison Management Plan has governed how the park's bison will be managed in and out of the park. Now, state and federal agencies with connections to Yellowstone are working to craft a new approach. Everything likely will be on the table as that effort moves forward, including the park's work to maintain its bison population at a specific number. The National Parks Conservation Association, along with other regional and national organizations earlier this spring, sent a letter to Montana Governor Steve Bullock and Yellowstone Superintendent Dan Wenk, 
outlining important areas of consideration for the development of the new plan. Those groups hope a solution can be found to killing hundreds of bison that leave the park during the winter months. Carolyn Bird, Executive Director of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, says, The effort to craft a new management plan offers the opportunity to improve, update, and shift the management of Yellowstone bison and reduce the annual cycle of controversy and conflict that has characterized the public debate regarding bison management for too long. A new management plan, she says, should be rooted in science, reflect the changes that have occurred in the past decade, incorporate our knowledge and experience managing bison, and chart a new course for bison conservation and management that is good for bison, good for Yellowstone National Park, and good for the state of Montana. You can lend your thoughts to the process too, as public comment period on aspects that should be covered in an environmental impact statement are being accepted into June. To comment, visit Yellowstone National Park's website. Click on the Get Involved link in the left-hand column, and then on the Planning link. For Wild About Utah, this is Jameson Clifton with National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. The 2015 Spoleto Festival USA is in full swing in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Fred Child. I've got highlights for you. Music, sound, stories, even some ghost stories. One of the great music and arts festivals on the planet on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour coming up next. Time now, 10 o'clock.